Thanks, Nick. <coughs> All right. Uh, it's fantastic to be here and to see you all here today. Uh, for those of you who have not met me, uh, my name is Jonathan and I get the opportunity to preach here every once in a while. Uh, you'll know that it's me preaching when you see me wearing a shirt and it has a collar. <laughs> uh, it's, um, it's very interesting how p- what people remember about you know sermons or the people giving the sermons. Uh, it's interesting that some people remember more about what you're wearing than perhaps your three points that you slaved over. Um, show of hands, who can remember the three points that a- Andrew shared about last week? One. How many people can remember what he wore last week? Can anyone? Yellow shirt, was it? What was Red shirt? Oh, I don't pay attention to what he's wearing, just what he says. But uh, uh, So that's how you can know that I'm speaking. Um, but yeah, it is fantastic to be here. We are looking at the book of James, uh, and we are actually in the final section of that book. Uh, the title of today's sermon is, There is Power in Prayer. There's Power in Prayer. Who was James? James was the brother of Jesus. He became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote this letter to Christians who'd been scattered from Jerusalem because of severe persecution. Now, unlike some of the other letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, James' primary concern is not so much about addressing specific problems that the church was going through or about explaining theology, even though James does do both of those things. James's main aim was to share his wisdom about what the Christian life looks like. He wants to answer the question, what does it mean to live with Jesus in your life? And it's actually a relatively short letter. We're already at the tail end of it, and it's only five chapters long. But it is action-packed. There is so much stuff that James addresses. There's a broad range of topics and challenges that he presents us with. In chapter 1, we looked at facing trials and temptations. We looked at what it means to be a doer of the word, not just a listener. And we looked at what true religion really means. In chapter 2, we looked at favoritism, what it means to judge another, and we learned that legitimate faith is accompanied by deeds. In chapter 3, we covered the things that cause community breakdown, the wrong things that we say, the wrong things that we think, or the wrong things that we want. And last week, from Andrew in the second half of chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5, we looked at how God wants us to live patiently in light of Jesus' return, and how it should shape the plans that we make and our attitude towards our material possessions. And today, in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, James challenges us on prayer. And it kind of feels like that James could talk about so many other things as well, on top of everything that he's already challenged us with. So how does James choose to close this action-packed letter? Well, I find it appropriate that James gives us the solution to any situation that we might encounter. Perhaps like a giant catch-all. What happens when I encounter this circumstance or this situation that the rest of the letter of James does not tell us about? What is his final advice that we can turn to no matter what we face? Well, James's answer is that we should pray. Because in all circumstances, prayer is powerful and effective. 
Because prayer is the most effective weapon which the Christian can live by, and it applies to any and every situation. Because the Christian who knows what it means to pray knows who God is, and that person shall glorify God. I'm going to invite Ben to come and read to us James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Let's give him a hand. Hello, is this one? Um, James chapter 5, 13 to 20, the prayer of faith. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let, the, let them call the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in, oil, sorry, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is a powerful and effective. Elijah, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not. did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. My brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the errors of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Thanks, Ben. So I've broken down James's wisdom on prayer into four short points. The first is we are to prioritize prayer. The second, we're to pray with one another. The third, we're to pray in faith. And fourthly, we are to pray for the lost to return. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for James who encourages us to pray. Father, we thank you that we can turn to you that as we pray, we can be reassured that you hear us and that our prayers can be powerful and effective. Father, I pray for each of us now. I pray that we would be not just listeners, but doers of your word as well. Father, we're reminded this morning, just as the rain falls on the earth, that you will send forth your word and that it will accomplish the purposes that you have for it. Father, I pray that our hearts would really be fertile soil. That, God, we put into action the things that you want us to. And that, God, we be people of prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. James opens with three rhetorical questions. Are you in trouble? Are you happy? Is anyone among you sick? And each time the answer is pray. Whether you're in trouble, whether you're happy, whether you're sick, turn to God in prayer. If you're going through some tough times, if things are hard, pray. If life is great, if all things are going well, things are looking up for you, then acknowledge God in joyful song. If you're sick, if you're not well, then you need to pray. 
No matter where you are, whether you're on top of the mountain or whether you're passing through the valley low or somewhere in between, turn to God and pray. No matter our situation, we need to turn to God and make prayer our number one priority. Many of us are guilty of turning to prayer as a last resort. Isn't it true that we'll try every humanly possible solution before we get down on our knees and pray to God? Isn't it just so natural for us as humans to want to solve everything on our own? We get really uncomfortable when we're put in situations that are out of our control, in situations where we have to rely on God, don't we? But the reality is God purposely puts us in those situations so that we can learn that he is completely dependable and faithful. If we truly understand God's character, then prayer will become our first priority instead of a last resort. There are various well-known verses in the Bible about prayer. Paul says it like this in Philippians 4.6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You see, Paul gives us the solution to worry and anxiety. No matter what situation you find yourself in, pray and earnestly seek God with your requests. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told to rejoice always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's general will for our lives is that we rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. How is that possible, you might ask? Well, it's possible because nothing can separate us from the love of God, so that we always have a reason to rejoice. It's possible to pray continually because we need Him all the time for all things, for every breath that we take, and He's always there for us to turn to. And whenever we draw near to Him, He promises that He will draw near to us. And it's possible to give thanks in all circumstances, no matter what hardships we face, because He's given us life through His Son, Jesus Christ. The opposite of prioritizing prayer is simply not praying. It's the sin of prayerlessness. So let me ask you, how did you go about determining God's specific and immediate will for your life, as we heard about from Andrew last week? God's general will, His will for all people, is that we live in close relationship with Him, loving Him with all our hearts, souls, strength, and mind, and that we love our neighbors as ourselves, fulfilling the royal law. But God's specific will for our lives, how we glorify Him with our vocations, with our careers, with our day jobs, that's not something that the Bible is going to directly tell us. You can't turn to the book of Jono and read in chapter 3, verse 9, that my vocation is to become a software developer and that I'm going to glorify Him by telling my workmates about Jesus over board games. What's God's immediate will for you today? What does he want you to do in response to what you're hearing right now? What changes do we need to make in our lives this afternoon to honor God? You see, only the Holy Spirit can help us answer those questions. And if we're not regularly talking to God, if we're not actively seeking him and listening to his voice, then we're not going to be able to discern what God's will for us really is. Remember, James says that if we know the good that we ought to do, but don't do it, then it is sin for us. Failing to pray is an indicator of our lack of love for the Lord. If at its heart that prayer is communication with God, what does it say to Him when we fail to find time to talk with Him? Chris, my wife, 
Hates it when I'm on my mobile phone whenever we're at a table eating together. I admit it's not a great habit, and I know some of you get very annoyed at that same thing. There is some slight chance that Carice feels slightly neglected by my lack of interaction with her at the dinner table, slightly. One might even get the crazy idea that it shows that I'm more interested in this thing on my phone than what she has to say. But enough about me, and back to all of you. The reality is, our lack of prayer also grieves the heart of God. When we're not communicating with God, we neglect Him. We forfeit our intimacy with Him, and we shouldn't expect to hear from Him or discern His will for our lives. On the, on the flip side, this guy called Dave Butts, with a very unfortunate name, he wrote this blog on the sin of prayerlessness, and he said this, We are never closer to the heart of the Father than when we have joined Him in prayer. We are never closer to the heart of the Father than when we have joined Him in prayer. Prayer enables us to, be, to have intimacy with our Lord. We are closest to the people that we spend the most time talking with. Think about, think about the last meaningful conversation that you had with someone. Just last Friday, I spent half an hour catching up with a friend who I hadn't seen in years. And even though we hadn't seen each other for that long, it certainly, we certainly felt a lot closer after our meal and conversation. I was made aware of his life situation and it caused me to think about him and his needs more often. David's song of praise in 1 Chronicles 16, 10 and 11 reflects this same sentiment that we can have with our Lord. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. When we seek the Lord, our hearts will rejoice. When we look to him and worship him with all our hearts, we'll find joy in the Lord. We will experience his strength and we will glorify his name. So let me help you out and give you one quick tip, one very basic tip that I've learnt uh, over the course of my life as a Christian and something that I've also learnt from my, exp my short experience in running. And the tip is this, schedule it and do it even when you don't feel like it. There's this uh, smartphone app called Strava that, amongst other things, it tracks how far you run. Over any given week in the past couple of years since I started using it, I can see exactly how far I ran that week and how long it took me to run it. I can see the route that I took, I can see what my heart rate was, and I can see how many steps I took per minute. Imagine if we tracked how much time you prayed each and every day. I think there are actually apps that can do this for you, but let's pretend that you don't use them. If Pastor Joe were to review your prayer profile, do you think that he would be impressed? Would you be happy to share the solid effort that you'd put into all this prayer? Or would you be ashamed of your lackluster efforts? Did you manage to complete any marathon sessions of prayer? Are you praying more regularly or more consistently now than you did as a younger Christian? Now don't get me wrong, being a person of prayer is not just about how many minutes you spend praying. Clearly, there is much to be said about having an attitude of prayer and being in constant communion with God throughout the day. But at the same time, if we can't, get, if we can't set aside time to pray each and every day, then there's little chance that we're going to form good prayer habits without making some changes to our lives. You can't really classify yourself as a runner if the only time you ever run is because you're late for your bus or train to work. 
Just because you own a pair of running shoes or shorts and a singlet, it doesn't make you a runner either. Unless you actually spend time dedicated to the task of running, you don't qualify as a runner. And it's the same with prayer. You may have a dedicated prayer closet and a mat and a Strava prayer app. You might know all there is to know about prayer and what the Bible says. There might not be a single new thing that you learn today from this sermon because you already know all about prayer. You may have even set aside and scheduled a time that you say you will pray each and every day. But the truth is, unless you actually, actually spend that time getting your knees acquainted with the carpet in meaningful communion with God, you can't really say that you are a prayer. So can I encourage you to set aside some time each and every day and to make it your number one priority? Let those around you in your life know that your prayer time is a priority for you. Do what it takes to make it an immovable appointment in your calendar. Set a daily reminder on your phone. For some of us, perhaps just starting out, commit to just five minutes every day. And for those of us who have journeyed with the Lord for longer and desire a deeper intimacy with God, adjust as you see fit. And just like with running, every extra minute that you dedicate to the exercise, it will pay off dividends later. Point number two. We are to pray with one another. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Did you know that scripturally, it's the role of the church elders to pray for those of us who are sick? You remember a couple of weeks ago that Joe shared about some of the causes of community breakdown in James chapter 3. Today, James shares a powerful way in which a community can encourage and build one another up by praying together. When we're sick, we're told to call the elders of the church so that they can pray over us and anoint us with oil in the name of the Lord. One of the important roles of the elders of the church, and in our case also the ministry team, is to pray over the sick and to anoint them with oil. Why does James instruct us to do this? Why can't we simply pray for ourselves individually? Well, James wants us to know that we are not alone. God designed the church to provide and care for one another. You're here to be a blessing to those around you, and likewise, we're here to be a blessing to you as well. So when you're sick, don't be shy in asking for help. Don't think that you're being intrusive or needy if you let someone know that you're struggling. Actually, the Bible tells us that the onus is on you, the sick person, to exercise your faith and to call the elders and let them know of your need. If you don't let others know, you actually rob the church of an opportunity to fulfill the God-given purpose that the church was designed to fulfill. Every time that we obey this, and every time that we pray with one another and support each other, the church grows in unity. We grow closer as a family. Our faith will grow as we see the love of God displayed in action, and God is glorified. Being vulnerable about our struggles and trials with one another provides an avenue through which the church can further demonstrate the love of God. And letting others know that you're sick, it doesn't have to be a public affair either. James isn't saying that you have to be like me and stand up here in front of church and tell everyone what, you, what the struggles are that you're going through and every little detail, especially if your matter is sensitive to you. But having the courage to tell one or two trusted people, preferably those in a position who can help you, perhaps someone in the eldership or ministry team, is highly encouraged. The anointing of oil has both spiritual and physical significance. 
Physically, oil was thought to have medicinal qualities, as indicated in the parable of the Good Samaritan, who bandages the beaten up man and puts oil on his wounds. Likewise, in Mark 6.13, the disciples, they go out and drive out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. In the Old Testament, oil was used to anoint prophets, priests, and kings. The oil symbolized the Spirit of God in dedicating and consecrating that person to the ministry. In today's context, to pray over the sick and anoint them with oil means providing both healing in a physical and spiritual sense. Just because we pray for the sick doesn't mean that we neglect medicine or ignore doctors' advice. But at the same time, we don't solely rely on medicine because prayer achieves what medicine and doctors cannot. Ultimately, whether it's by, medical, by medicine or miracle, it's God who provides the healing. It's him who raises the sick person up. If you'd like to find out more about praying over the sick with oil, then I invite you to have a chat with Pastor John and Auntie Kat, who have prayed over me in the past and anointed me with oil as well. Another reason that we need to pray with one another is because it encourages us to deal with our sin. Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 5. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Praying with one another encourages us to confess our sins and to ask for forgiveness. You might be thinking, why do I need to confess my sins to others? I can go to God directly and ask him for forgiveness instead. And you're right, you can and you should. But there really is healing to be found in being transparent to others who genuinely care for your spiritual growth. How often does it happen that we fail to deal with our sin until it's been revealed to us by a caring brother or sister? In the past, I found it immensely helpful to have a concerned brother or sister point out to me the areas in which I have been failing or need to work on. When we come together and pray for each other, confessing our sins to one another, we enable God's healing process to flow. The connection between sickness and sin is not a hard and fast rule in the Bible. It's true to say that some sickness is caused by sinful behavior. For example, after Jesus heals the cripple at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 4, Jesus says this to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. But Jesus also makes very clear that this is not always the case. That there are times when sickness or misfortune is not caused by one's sinful actions. Instead, it's a result of living in a fallen and sin-tainted world. For example, regarding the man born blind in John chapter 9. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's not possible to conclusively say whether sin is the cause of sickness without some amount of discernment. Therefore, when we get together and pray, it's good for us to evaluate with one another where we're at spiritually. This way we can support each other in repenting and growing if we've committed sin. While it's possible that God can reveal our sin to us at an individual level, God has provided us with a church family to aid in the process. I can tell you from my own experience in dealing with perhaps my own sin or the sin of others that it really is not the most pleasant experience. 
Uh, inevitably, it involves some hard-hitting words. When done right, when done biblically, they're words that are spoken in love and they're received with humility. Sometimes they involve delicate issues with, which involves lots of tension and messy human emotions. And sometimes it's a tough disciplinary talk. But in my experience, no matter how it happens, when it's accompanied by much prayer, the result has always been generally positive. Change may not happen immediately, but as we yield to God's loving discipline, He transforms us. He grants forgiveness. He brings healing. He softens hearts. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, talks about how we are to approach a brother who we've identified in sin. It talks about how we are to talk to them directly, and if that doesn't work, then to involve two or three others. And it's in this specific context of dealing with a brother's sin that Jesus then says this famous verse. Verses 19 to 20. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. When we gather together in twos or threes and pray and confess our sins with each other, God especially promises us that he will be there with us in our midst. He is the God of reconciliation. He loves it when his people repent and turn back to him. This special provision of God for us should be a great motivation for us to pray more regularly and urgently with one another. James makes it clear to us that praying as a community, that praying together, has multiple benefits. The church is to be sensitive to the needs of its members and to provide avenues for prayer. As we open up to each other about our needs, as we pray and confess our sins, the church becomes a place of healing. The sick are raised up and made well. That's the kind of community that the world would notice and would want to be a part of, isn't it? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that community? So church, let's be that church. Let's be a church that is genuinely interested in each other's spiritual welfare. Let's be a church that is a beacon of hope for those who need the healing touch of God. Let's be a church that believes when our elders pray over us and anoint us with oil, that God will heal us, that he will raise up the sick person. Let's be a church that helps one another deal with their sin and their weaknesses in humility and in love, that we might see the Holy Spirit work in us and through us on display in our lives. Point number three, we are to pray in faith. Verses 16 and to 18 says this, The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was arguably the boldest and most confrontational prophet of the Old Testament. We're first introduced to him in 1 Kings chapter 17. He's one of many prophets to the nation of Israel and to Judah. And the very first words that we read about him are this, in 1 Kings 17 verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. These are some pretty bold words. Can you imagine if someone came in here and said, it's going to stop raining and it will never rain until I let it rain again? Well, that's 
kind of what Elijah is saying to King Ahab, a pagan king who believed in Baal. Baal was the god of fertility, and so he was throwing some serious shade at Ahab's gods. Now, during the drought that followed because of his prayer and, and the famine that came about because of the drought, Elijah is provided for by ravens who give him food morning and night. He is then led to provide an infinite supply of flour and oil to a desperately poor widow. When the widow's son dies, Elijah resurrects him. And then he goes on and challenges King Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal. If you're not familiar with the story, you can read all about it in 1 Kings chapter 18. But I'm going to pick it up just after this episode. In verse 41 of chapter 18, it says this. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for, is, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Elijah then goes on to pray, and in verse 45 it says this, Meanwhile the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed for the provision of God, and he saw it in the form of obedient ravens and an unending supply of flour and oil. He prayed a dead boy back to life. He prayed for fire to come down from heaven, and it happened. And then he prayed that it would rain once more, and it came down in buckets, more than it is even today. Through his prayers, Elijah could command, over, could command anything that had come down from heaven for three and a half years, whether fire or water. Now most of us, when we hear that story, we're tempted to think, there's no way that I could be that, like Elijah. There's no way that I could pray and do what Elijah did. And yet the very next verse in James completely squashes this idea. In James chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Elijah was a human being, just like us. There is nothing special about Elijah. There's nothing special that he had that we don't also have available to us today, right here and right now. He's no different from your eye. The blood that runs through his veins is red, just like ours. He didn't have some sort of supernatural ability or some secret method of prayer. He also had his flaws and his moments of fear and weakness. There is this tendency for us to put these great men and women in the Bible on a level above us, on this unattainable level. We think that we could never do or experience what they did. But James wants us to know that that it is a lie, that we can Elijah, after all, was a human being just like us. We can pray just like Elijah did right now to the same God to whom Elijah prayed right now, and we can also experience the same supernatural power in our lives too right now. Perhaps if there's one thing to be said, the only difference between Elijah's prayer and ours is our level of faith that accompanied his prayers. So let me ask you, do you believe that prayer is the most powerful thing that we can do in any given situation? Do you believe that we do and can pray just like Elijah and see the miraculous work of God in our lives? 
You see, when James says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, he's not saying that only the people who are perfect and sinless in this world can do those things. Elijah was neither of those things. In fact, if we continue to read the story after the drought is over, Elijah fears for his life, and he actually goes so far as to pray that he might die in 1 Kings 19 verse 4. Despite everything that he had seen and everything that he had experienced and all the amazing prayers that were answered, Elijah was not a perfect person. A righteous person is not someone who is perfect or sinless. A righteous person is one who has been made righteous because of Jesus and who now lives in close relationship with God. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we've received by faith the good news of Jesus and trust in him for our eternity, then we can rest assured that we've been made righteous in the eyes of God. When we're walking closely in communion with him, then we can be confident that God hears our prayers and that he will work in our situation for us. Francis Chan, in his video on this chapter, prompts us to, consider, to seriously consider this question. Do you believe that God could respond to your prayers like he did to Elijah? Do you believe that there is real power when you pray? Do you pray with that kind of faith, believing that your prayers are also powerful and effective? What if I took this verse and I inserted your name into it? What if I said the prayer of Jono is powerful and effective? What if I said the prayer of Chris or Allison or Jimmy or Joe or any one of you in the back row? If I inserted your name and I said the power of the the prayer of your name is powerful and effective. Would you believe that? After all, aren't we all human beings just like Elijah? Don't we all have the access to the same omnipotent God bought by the blood of Jesus? It wasn't Elijah that brought fire down. It was God, wasn't it? But it was Elijah's prayers that prompted it. That's the kind of faith that James wants us to exercise when we pray. When we're walking with God, our prayers are not merely wishful thoughts or hopeful requests. They are words that are received by the God of the universe who gave his son for you and for I. Point number four, we are to pray for the lost to return. Verses 19 and 20, the last two verses in the book of James. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James closes his letter by suggesting perhaps the most powerful miracle that we can pray for, the salvation of others. It's a greater miracle than fire falling from heaven because fire falling from heaven is over in an instant. It's greater than rain not falling on the earth for three years because that will be over in three years. The turning of a sinner from the error of their ways, that's a miracle that will echo for eternity. While it may not be as flashy as fire from heaven or as incredible as bringing someone back from the dead or as unbelievable as declaring someone cancer-free or as seeing a cripple pick up his mat and walk, praying for the salvation of others is the single most important prayer that we can make for someone else. In the grand scheme of things, your physical condition in this lifetime 
is insignificant compared to your spiritual condition in eternity. That's why it is our privilege, it is our duty as those who know the truth to be able to petition God for the salvation of those around us. Do you really believe that God could use you to save someone from death and to cover over a multitude of sins? Do you believe that your prayers can affect the eternal destinies of those who you know? The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. May we have the same urgency, the same fervor, and the same longing to see more come to Jesus. May not a single soul around us go to hell without us first bombarding the gates of heaven with intercessory prayer for their lives. May we exercise our faith as we pray with power and effectiveness in seeing the lost being saved from death. Having shared everything that I've shared with you today, I must admit, and I'm a little sad to say, that there are still times in my life when I'm tempted to think that prayer is not that interesting, where prayer is boring. And if I'm honest, there are lots of times when I don't feel like praying, or perhaps I don't look forward to prayer. There are times where I thought prayer meeting was an inconvenience for me. My flesh understands the temptation to skimp on prayer and to instead sit down and watch the latest episode of Married at First Sight or something on Netflix. You're laughing because you do it too. And if I'm honest with myself, I know that I need to heed my own advice, that I need to schedule prayer, and that I need to make it an immovable appointment in my life as well. And I also find that the older I get, the more there is to pray about. Perhaps I'm becoming more mature, but more likely it's just the nature of getting older. I was praying somewhat desperately to God on Friday night, as I genuinely find myself doing before I have to give a sermon. God, why do I always leave this thing to the last minute? How does this seriously keep on happening? God, how am I going to explain to the church what James is trying to say? God, I know you want people to pray more, but what could I possibly say that would make that happen? How am I going to preach about something that, quite frankly, I need to get better at doing myself? Wouldn't I be a hypocrite if I told them to pray more if I myself was not doing it. What is it going to take to bring about prayer revival in my own life, let alone in the members of GCC? Our monthly prayer meetings, God, aren't that well attended. Why is it those who believe in the power of prayer so far and few between? But as I shared these thoughts with God, I sensed God telling me not to worry. I don't have to worry about how you're going to respond because that's God's job. He's the one who's going to bring about transformation. He's the one who will bring about revival in my life and in yours. He's the one who right now, I believe, is convicting each of us about our prayer habits, about our prayerlessness. His Spirit is the one that's at work right now, opening our eyes, our ears, our hearts and minds. He's building up faith in each of us through the hearing of His Word this morning. All I need to do is be faithful to his word and trust that he will do the rest. 
And as that truth became clear to me, it su suddenly didn't matter so much that I don't have the most entertaining illustrations or the most eloquent words. It's of little importance whether I have the most stirring introduction or use the most thought-provoking quotes. What matters is that God's word is preached, that his truth is proclaimed, and that I remain faithful to his word. God will speak for himself through James, and the Holy Spirit will make it effectual. So can I encourage you, church, to make prayer a priority in your life? Perhaps a little like I've done out of necessity over the past week as I've prayed for this sermon. Let's turn to God first in everything, whether we're in trouble, whether we're happy, or whether we're sick. Let's schedule it, put it in our calendars. Let's do it even when we don't feel like we need to. And let's prioritize praying with one another. That's why we're a church family. That's why we have each other. If you're sick, be bold. Call the elders of the church to pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. If you're struggling to resist sin, make yourself vulnerable to a brother or sister you trust and experience the presence of God wherever two or three are gathered in his name. Let's pray with renewed faith and with renewed vigor, believing that God will answer us just as he did Elijah on Mount Carmel. Let's pray for those who need to be lovingly brought back into the fold of God. I honestly don't really know why, but I thought it was appropriate to close with Psalm 23. I'm going to read it now. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful privilege of, of church. We thank you for this wonderful privilege of being able to pray to you and, and knowing that you hear us. We thank you for this wonderful privilege that we can open your word, that we can read in James what it means to live a practical Christian life. And we thank you for the encouragement that we can have that Elijah was just a human and yet he did amazing things in your name. Father, I pray right now that you would help us, that you would help us to pray, that you would help us to pray with one another, that you'd help us to pray and to care for one another. Father, I pray that you would transform us, that you would transform me, that you would transform this church, that truly this place would become a place of healing, that God, wherever we go, people would see your healing flow because of our prayers. Lord, I thank you that we have this wonderful privilege, this wonderful access to you at any time. And no matter what we're experiencing, whether good or bad, God, we can go to you and you will hear us. And Father, I thank you for your many promises that when we pray over the sick, you will make them well. And God, when we pray when we're close to you, you will make our prayers powerful and effective. God, what a wonderful privilege that it is. Father, I thank you that we can make a difference in the lives of others 
in the lives of those who do not know you, in the lives of those who have gone astray. Father, I thank you that our prayers can change eternity. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us now. I thank you that you are challenging us, that you are transforming us. Lord, I pray that this week would be different, that today would be different as we seek you with all our hearts. Father, would you change us? Lord, I pray that there would not be a day that that goes by this week where we have not spent time meditating and praying with you. Lord, change us, help us. Father, we thank you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.